If you want 2024 to be your best running year, it is essential you have a customized training plan tailored to your race schedule and ability level. That's why I'm pumped to have Motive sponsoring the podcast. You can use the app for free, but if you want two months of premium access, you can use code SMARTER2. Sign up at mymotive.com. The link will be in the show notes. On today's episode, understanding common running foot conditions with Ian Griffiths. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. I apologize to Ian Griffiths at the end of this interview because uh, just I understood that this was a, a quite a tough challenge for him, um, for anyone to, to take on such a, um, to try and answer a lot of these questions because I've got a lot of patron questions come through with a lot of foot conditions. And while it's nice to have a deep dive into certain conditions, because today we talk about big toe arthritis, we talk about Morton's neuroma, sinus tarsi syndrome, plantar plate injuries. We talk about having like sore toes, burning feet, all these sorts of things, fat pads as well. And sometimes it's nice to just do a deep dive into a certain topic, but I sort of just had, all right, Ian, we've got these nine questions, whole bunch of different conditions. Can we try and limit to an hour if we can? And that's just an incredibly tough task. And a lot of these conditions are quite hard to explain um, purely through an audio format. And a lot of these questions did require a little bit of extra information um, for Ian to answer it with a little bit more detail, but he did it in such a professional fashion and with the same enthusiasm he has um, last time he was on, which was talking about plantar fasciitis. We had such an in-depth conversation and we were enjoying ourselves way too much. We had to split it up into two episodes because it went for about an hour, 15, an hour, 20, something along those lines. But we'll take it away. Really happy with how this episode turned out. Big thanks to Ian for coming on again. Please check out his social medias. We've got Sports Podiatry Info, which has lots of uh, really in-depth information, really simple information for runners about foot conditions. And please check out his podcast, Podchat Live, one of the few running podcasts that I actually listen to because it's got such good, high-quality information. And you can just tell just by the caliber of the answers Ian provides on this interview. Like I said, really happy, and I know you'll love it. Ian, welcome back to the Run Smarter podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you on last time, and you know, people could sense the the amount of passion that you have with these working with runners, and you know, just trying to educate people as much as possible. So, I had a um, an episode on foot strength and asked the patrons about some questions they want to submit. And a lot of them were about foot conditions. And while it wasn't necessarily foot strength specific, I thought I'd have someone of your caliber onto the podcast to talk about all these conditions. So I have a whole list of patron questions submitted and thought we would dive into all of them. Um, how does that sound? That sounds fun. I, I, you'll have, you know, I, I'll talk about feet as, as long as you'll have me. So that's no problem. With <laughs> yes. Good. Well, I am conscious that it is, you know, 10 p.m. in your local time over there. So I'll be conscious of that. We've got the first one from Holly. And Holly asks, any tips for managing big toe arthritis? Um, first of all, do you want to just dive into big toe arthritis for runners? Maybe talk about that a little bit before we dive into Holly's question. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, 
we'll, we'll, we'll keep it brief and sort of not go too, too technical, but essentially it's, it's an incredibly common thing we see, um, not just in runners, in, in humans really. Um, traditionally, I think uh, osteo, osteoarthritis was, was referred to as being wear and tear. I don't think we like that term too much anymore. I don't think it's a, it's a great term to hear if, you're being, if you're, it's your toe that's being talked about. And also we now know that it, it isn't just wearing out of the cartilage um, like we, we once thought it was. The whole, the whole joint is involved, um, you know, the, the, the bones, the cartilage, the synovium, so, you know, the fluid in there. And essentially what you end up with is, is a joint that is, is more painful and more stiff than, than we would like it to be. Um, now, when it comes to the big toe, um, that can sometimes be problematic, given that it's one of the, um, one of the joints of the foot that has a fair amount of repetitive uh, load and work placed through it, particularly you know with running, but but with walking as well. Um, essentially, when it comes to managing it, uh, and again, forgive me, I'll probably be the same with all the conditions we speak about. In that, some things depend on on context and the individual and the severity. So, forgive me if I'm sounding a bit a bit vague and a bit grey. But essentially, um, we'd always try and manage them conservatively first. So, you know, conservative management um, sometimes looks like um, using foot orthoses. Uh, a lot of the time now, we are very fortunate that we've got these carbon plated running shoes that, again, are very much marketed for performance gains, you know, being a, being certain percent faster. But actually, they're a, they're a godsend when it comes to uh, sort of uh, limited range, stiff, painful big toes. They can really sort of... Um, allow someone to continue running um, and essentially immobilize that area while it desensitizes a bit. And we've also got other still, I think they still come under the umbrella of conservative, but we've got things like uh, uh, steroid injections as well. And all of these, I would encourage people to, to consider, to talk to, to people about um, before they end up uh, in front of a surgeon having that chat. Not that that isn't sometimes where you need to be. It really just depends on on the severity. Um, and again, when I say severity, I'm constantly having to remind myself that the severity of someone's arthritis doesn't necessarily correlate with their pain. So we see, as I'm sure you do, Brody, we see an awful lot of toes that are uh, radiologically uh, considered to be quite severe, but these people are pain-free and they are performing functional tasks to a level that they are happy with. Um, so, you know, always remember that, the, that you are not your x-ray, but ultimately if things are pain, if thing, uh, things are painful or stiff, if things are inhibiting your ability or your joy of running, um, then, you know, think carbon plated shoes, think foot orthoses, think injections. Um, that's where I'd start with it. Nice. And I have had some episodes in the past about knee and also hip OA, and it seems like the advice for that is exactly the same. You know, it's not just a wear and tear pathology. It shouldn't be considered that anymore. It should be considered more. If if we're talking about the, the big toe specifically, it's, you know, the, the symptoms, and it can be irritated just from overload, and there may be something structurally going on, but could be well managed if, you know, load management is um, taken into consideration. And I do like the advice around the the kind of, bigger, stiffer shoes or orthoses to um, help, I guess, what you, what you said, decrease the sensitivity of it in that particular period of time because it doesn't necessarily mean your pathology is getting worse. It's just in a little particular sensitive state and we can do things to help settle it down with injections and footwear and those sort of things until it calms down. Then you slowly build your way back up. And I've had my experience. I actually had some foot pain last year and queried a stress fracture so went and got an MRI and they said okay no stress fracture but you also have mild to moderate big toe osteoarthritis and I was so disappointed that they put that in the scans because it has nothing to do with my presentation I have had no um, big toe pain in the past and was really disappointed that they decided to throw that out there so um, I'd be like a an example of someone who has mild to moderate a way that has perfectly functioning toes and no pain whatsoever. So that's a, a little case study um, to come forth with. But uh, Holly also asked, can this condition cause problems elsewhere? So if someone does have a painful toe, um, can that start to 
produce some sort of other pathologies or other issues further up the chain? Yeah, it's a valid question. I just was taking a second here to be mindful of the way I answer this because the the answer is it could, but I also want to be clear that, um, you know, the concept of, uh, I, I, you know, I know that when we, we look out there in the wide world, we go on places like Instagram, there's all sorts of, you know, skeletons with gr- red lines that are bad and green lines that are good. And, and um, you know, we, the body is not a machine. I know I'm preaching to the converted here um, when I talk to you about this, Brody, but I, you know, I see people that say, well, if your big toe doesn't move properly, then that causes X, Y, and Z. And that's probably what's causing your mandibular, you know, slash jaw pain. And, and I, I don't want that to be the message here, but it is fair to say that the big toe joint is fairly fundamental to what we would call sagittal plane mechanics, which is a fancy way of saying when we're running, we're normally going in a straight line. We're moving from somewhere behind us to somewhere in front of us. And the way we pass over our our planted foot on the ground is initially via our ankle joint and then laterally by our big toe joint. So if if that joint is stiff, painful, you know, restricted, um, we may not go through it or use it as well as we could or should either because it, we can't use it mechanically because it's too stiff, or we may well find ourselves avoiding it. Uh, our central nervous system will do this for us. Um, you know, we will always avoid something that's sensitive. So when we then start moving in a different way, it is not unreasonable to assume that may load different tissues in different ways. Now, whether that means we could be so bold as to say, if you've got big toe osteoarthritis, it will cause you knee pain or hip pain. I I don't know that I'd be too comfortable sort of being too definitive about what it may cause, but we've certainly seen scenarios where people move differently, pain avoidance strategies, et cetera, and that may well load tissues more proximal to the big toe, so higher higher up um, in a different way. So it's, it's a very reasonable thought process, but I think we need to be careful not to catastrophize things too much and get too caught up on you know, my big toe's not moving, therefore I'm, I'm doomed. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's a fear that a lot of people have, especially if someone starts having say like two conditions or three conditions all on one side, they assume that like that one side is, you know, moving differently or it's going to cause more issues in the future just, um, and they're unsure of why it's happening, but they just attribute to if injuries are all on one side, there must be something seriously going on with the mechanics and, not necessarily the case, but like you say, um, take it on an individual basis because it could, but um, could not also. Yeah, we, we do we do look for reasons, don't we? We do we do like you know if it's very easy for if someone had a, a arthritic big toe on the left side and their left hip started hurting, we want to know why that left hip's hurting, and we know that it can be complex and multifactorial, but we we're much more reassured if a health professional tells us, well, actually, that's probably problematic because the big toe on that side isn't working and, and again it's an easy link to make and it doesn't mean it's right but I've also quite rightly you could have a big a sore a, a stiff sore big toe on the left and hip pain on the right and you could see a different specialist who tell you that was the cause because it was compensatory so we've got to be careful because it's a bit uh, a bit boggy and gray but again these these really stiff rocker soled shoes they really help facilitate that progression through the sagittal plane which hopefully not just keeps that big toe, as we already mentioned, a, a bit less sensitive, but it facilitates better sagittal plane movement, straight line mechanics, without some of the potential compensatory or, 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 change, or you know, change loading patterns elsewhere. Yeah, very well said. Um, Jesse asks, are there any recommendations for sinus tarsi syndrome? And curious to get your thoughts on, first of all, what sinus tarsi syndrome is. Yeah, it's it's um, it's probably you know when we're speaking to a group of runners and we talk about certain conditions like you know big toe arthritis or plantar fasciitis like we spoke about at length last time, every runner in a room nods along because they've either had it or they've spoken to someone that that's got it. And and sinus tar- sinus tarsi is something that um may not come under that umbrella. It may be something runners are like, what the devil does does this mean? Um, I've I've, I've just realized actually i've got a foot model here and i can hold it up and show you but this is a podcast not a video isn't it so yeah i could you can teach me if you want (laughs) probably won't do any good but essentially uh if you take a look on google images at the foot skeleton what you'll see if you look on the the lateral side to the outside of the ankle um 
you know the side that your your little toe is essentially it's sort of front outside edge you've got this little um this little aperture or it's sometimes referred to as a canal um so where your your sort of talus sits on top of your calcaneus so this is this is um terrible use of podcast video i'm doing here i'm showing brody on the video here but you've got this you know you've got the bone of, of your ankle sits on top of your heel bone and basically it, there's a little there's a little canal or, or you know passageway between the two um, and that's referred to as the site that is anatomically referred to as the sinus tarsi now within this canal there are uh, ligaments there are nerves there are there are vessels and some of these can um, we can get irritation in this area so it's usually um, either post-traumatic so we can see sinus tarsi irritation after uh, an ankle inversion or similar or we sometimes see a more gradual slow insidious onset and it's thought to be secondary to biomechanics so the way your foot foot dynamics so your foot behaving in a certain way we see you know more pronated feet we tend to, to see more compression in the sinus tarsi at least um mechanically speaking it makes sense that that would would occur um now we tend to find, you know, any, if people report pain on the sort of front outside of their ankle, they report uh, real difficulty on uneven surfaces. It raises our suspicion that it may be sinus tarsi syndrome. But it's important to note that it does have some differentials that, that manifest or present in really similar ways. So, it, you know, we mentioned an ankle sprain. Ankle sprain and sinus tarsi syndrome um, can present in a fairly similar way. You can get pain and sensitivity in the same location and you don't tend to like uneven surfaces, but also actual arthritic arthritis or synovitis in the, in the subtalar joint itself. So the most important thing is to know you're definitely dealing with sinus tarsi syndrome because it's got a couple of really, really similar differentials. Uh, so usually an MRI, if, if suspected uh, sinus tarsi, you'd normally confirm or refute um, with an MRI. Um, now again, uh, I think depending on why you've got it. So if it's if it's uh, sort of post traumatic, you'd sort of treat it a bit similar to an ankle sprain. So the the the, the order of the day is is good physiotherapy, um, alongside usually footwear, uh, sensible footwear and good physiotherapy. But if it's been more one of those more gradual insidious onsets, we'd normally want to take a bit of a closer look at your the foot's biomechanics, how the foot's behaving. Do we think there's this high levels of load going through through the sinus tarsi, through the subtalar joint in that in that region? So a bit similar to what I've just said, um, sensible footwear, foot orthoses, good physio. Um, and once again, if it's, if it's not responding to those conservative things, it is something that it's, it's fairly easy to inject. Um, it's much easier to inject than a big than an arthritic big toe joint, because it's like you say, if you look on an image, it's like a really big canal. That you can just you know ultrasound guide a needle in there dump a, dump a load of corticosteroid and that tends to respond quite well um so yeah it's uh, it's it's probably not not a particularly common thing um i mean we see it quite commonly but it's not a common thing when you're when you're talking to a group of injured runners but it can be persistent it can bother people a bit like post ankle sprains they can they don't necessarily prohibit people running but they grumble you know they almost people I speak to runners that say I, it's like a three out of ten, but I can't remember. I haven't run without thinking about it or without it grumbling a little bit for like the last three, four, five months. You aren't a template, so your training shouldn't be either. The Motive app takes training plans written by the best coaches in the world, then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. It's such a good idea, which is why it is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world and has thousands of age group athletes signing up every month with a near perfect 4.9 star rating. It will even plan triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, and other events if you're branching away from running races. You can use the app for free for as long as you want, with the premium access being just $19.99 per month. But if you use code SMARTER2, you can get two months of full premium access. Sign up through their website, mymotive.com, and make 2024 your best year yet. So it's, it's one of those low irritability, low severity, but really long, frustrating, persistent type problems. Mm, yeah, I think um, one of the major takeaways there is to when to seek advice or when to seek an assessment or when to seek scans or treatment. Um, because like you say, it can 
behave like if you roll your ankle or sprain your ankle um it can be caused by that and some people might just think it's a persistent rolled ankle when in fact it might be the sinus tisi that's um you know being involved and mm. particularly and you also said like with insidious onset and something that wasn't that traumatic and I guess the overall takeaway is if it's not getting better in a couple of weeks and you're still noticing that grumbling within a couple of weeks, because in most cases with an ankle sprain, it just gets better. And if one to two weeks, you're usually back to, you know, your normal functioning. Um, if it does persist, then it definitely is warranted to get assessed and then query whether you think it might just be an ankle sprain or whether it might just be something else or this sinus tarsi. So very good advice there. Um, anything else that we want, need to include in this condition before moving on? No, I think your point's really valid that, you know, if, if you've sprained your ankle, if you've, ha- if you've undergone an inversion mechanism, you, you usually know, like you say, you, you, you remember doing it. So um, you don't have to necessarily rush off and see someone, you know, for every time you turn your ankle. But if after a few weeks, these things are grumbling on, um, definitely worth booking in to see someone because, you know, is it is it an ATFL, you know, sprain? Uh, is it the sinus tarsi or is it you know m- neural irritation is it the parent is it the perineal the perineal perineal tendon all these things can sometimes then manifest further down the line after inversion so knowing what you're dealing as with all things knowing what you're dealing with gives you the best chance of being as efficient with your your time and your energy uh, you know put put into getting it to recover and getting back running you know sooner rather than later yeah. I want to dive into plantar plate injuries and we'll start by talking about that because Aiden asks, what's your take on strengthening or rehab for plantar plate injuries? But let's dive into the condition first. Um, what What is it? And like, you know, is it common amongst runners? Uh, so yeah, what, let's start with what it is. So the plantar plate is this sort of... Um, uh, deep fibrocartilage, which uh, again, I've got my foot model here, but I'm, I'm conscious it doesn't. <laughs> well, but essentially, uh, plantar is you know means on the on on the sole of the foot. So you're essentially the best way to describe it to runners who may not be medical, who are listening and don't have the video and they can't see my foot model. If you go up, if you're standing barefoot and you go up onto your tiptoes, where where you bend across the foot, the ball of your foot that's, that's touching the floor, they're your metatarsal heads. Um, and essentially, what keeps your toes attached to your metatarsals and in good alignment and and stable um, are the capsular structures that attach from the metatarsal to the proximal phalanx and on the underneath the plantar aspect um, you've got this deep fibrocartilage um, which is referred to as the plantar plate and it's a lot of I've seen a lot of texts that actually refer to it as almost a functional extension of the plantar fascia because obviously the plantar fascia has um, goes on, along the sole of the foot and has slips into every single digit. So probably helpful, I think, for people to think of it as a functional extension of the plantar fascia. So anything you do that places load or tension in your plantar fascia probably does the same to the plantar plate. That's a good way, I think, to sometimes have a think about where it's located and the kind of things that might place um, demand on it. Now, we see a lot of it. Um, do I see a lot in, in, in runners? And again, we can get plantar plate like anything, like any soft tissue. You can get a strain, you can get tears, you can get ruptures. Um, do I see a lot of plantar plate injury in runners? I see I see some, most commonly second metatarsophalangeal joint. So second toe joint seems to be the most common. Um, I've read some work that suggests it's, um, if, if someone has, if someone presents with pain in the second toe joint, um, it should always be on the list of differentials because it's one of the most commonly missed diagnoses. Um, and you can, there are certain tests you can perform for it. I would say if you've got pain in the, any of the toe joints associated with you looking down at your foot and you suddenly think the toes look like they're changing position, you know, drifting up, floating up or drifting to the side, that's a pretty good indication that the structures that normally hold the toe in a good position may have some kind of deficit. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, again, it can be traumatic or it can be sort of repetitive micro trauma. So it feels like it's insidious and it's crept up on you. But metatarsophalangeal joint, ball of the foot pain with a change in toe position, we should probably be really thinking that the plantar plate may be, may be involved. Um, I, we see a lot in, in um, I, the last, I look after a couple of professional rugby teams, the last three I've seen have all been in um, rugby forwards. And if you think about the, the demands of scrummaging 
um, it will make sense as to why there's an awful, and these are, these are big, big, uh, big men as well, it will make sense as to why the plant plate is, is placed under significant load. So that's what the, um, that's what the planter plate is and when we see it. I guess non-elite sports people, we, we anything that places high uh, dorsiflexion demands across those metatarsals. So um, people that have switched to forefoot running. Um, we, we, we go back 10 years, 2011 when born, you know, 2010, 2011, when we know we had a little, a little boom. Uh, Born to Run came out and there was the paper by by Daniel Lieberman in Nature. It was the perfect storm. And for the following year, um, we saw a lot of people suddenly switch to running in with, with, with more minimal shoes, less cushioning, um, less stiffness in their shoes, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm saying it can be a bad thing for certain tissues when they're, when they're not used to it. Uh, and then they also switch to barefoot running, which again is more, more forefoot dorsiflexion. Um, I think I probably saw more plantar plate tears in 2011 than, than, than I had done in the previous decade. Um, so I would say, uh, coming back to the second question, and just correct me if I misremembered, but you said, what do, what, 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 what do we think about rehab for it? Was that the question? Yeah, like is there strengthening that's warranted? Uh, what sort of rehab management is, is it worth when we have this injury? Yeah, I think um, this is one of the things that... that Intrinsic foot muscle strength is 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 probably um, an incredibly sensible thing to consider. Which you know, these, what we're essentially looking at here is a structure that tries to maintain a good function and stability of the, one of the metatarsophalangeal joints. So, uh, if it's lacking in some way, um, then you know, asking some of its neighbouring colleagues to pick up some slack and uh, is probably a smart idea. Again, if we're talking about a complete plantar plate tear. The, the horse may have bolted and strength may be um, maybe not not going to cut the mustard and we may we may be looking at surgical options but that that would be with a complete tear or rupture generally speaking I think intrinsic muscle strength um, basically what you've got to try and do is get strong I think car I should probably mention calf flexibility probably sensible to target um, particularly if we think there's problems there because um Calf inflexibility, you know, tight posterior muscle group, one of the most common causes when we're moving of um, having a slightly early heel lift or, you know, loading our forefoot a bit earlier during the gait cycle. Um, and that, again, is going to place demand on the plantar plate as well. So, again, if we consider it the, the functional extension of the plantar fascia, we can sort of think, what sort of things would we do to rehab the, you know, what, what sort of what would rehab the plantar fascia pain look like? It should probably look quite similar, but... We've got to try and avoid positions of loaded flexion at the metatarsophalangeal joints when we are acutely sensitive. So it's it's one of those, um, I guess, double-edged swords where we say, okay, let's get some calf or some celial strength. Um, but actually, one of the main ways we tend to do that is with standing or seated heel raises. And heel raises are going to load you through the ball of the foot. And that there may be a, a good time to do that, but it's not normally going to be fairly early on. Mm. And would you say like in the early phases when it is quite irritated um, and, you know, struggling to come up onto your, the balls of the, the toes that becomes quite irritated, is there a phase of similar to, you know, that rigid footwear that we're talking about before? Is it is it worth trying to limit that amount of toe extension um, to allow that, that particular structure to rest? Yeah, I think that's a really smart idea. Um, again, not not as a life sentence, but... Uh, early on to try and desensitize things um rigid stiff rocker sole footwear if you've got them um it's almost getting to the point where i think every runner should have a, a pair of carbon plated stiff rocker sole footwear with a big toe spring if not for race day to try and get pbs then for there are there are there are multiple niggles lakes and pains where this shoe is is a great tool to reach for early on and we already mentioned big toe arthritis and and this is definitely another one we also do something called um digital plantar flexion taping so you just loop a bit of tape around the digit plantar flex the digit to pull the toe down and then and then cross it over on the on the sole of the foot just to limit some of that toe extension as well um and some people report that foot orthoses with a with a cutaway underneath the the metatarsal head of the of the the well, I was going to say second, but it may not be the second, of course, but that tends to be where we see it most commonly. A, a cutaway for the sensitive metatarsal head region is, is often reported as being quite useful as well. 
Yeah. And I'm glad that you, you highlighted the um, abrupt changes that could happen. Like if we're not playing rugby, cause we're mainly runners um, that like say minimalist footwear, um, four foot running can be okay. As long as you adapt to it. And as long as the, the rest of the body has enough time to adapt to those conditions. But if you do have an abrupt change in like sprinting or uh, hill sprints or footwear, that's like really flexible and, you know, requires a lot of demand through those particular structures, then you could be running into a little bit of trouble. And if that, that shift is too abrupt, then that's when we start might, then we could be raising some issues. Yeah, totally agree. I always say to, to my athletes, my patients, um, there's, there's no there's no shoe that is inherently good or bad. There's no running technique that's inherently good or bad. Um, you know, these it's change that gets us. You know, uh, human mm. tissues um, human tissues are sensitive to change. They don't like things too quickly. They like they like time to adapt. They um, you know tissues they don't like holidays. They don't like surprises. They don't like novel novel loading over mm. short periods yeah. of time. Yeah. Well said. Okay, we have Joanne's question. Is it possible to increase the thickness of fat pads on the feet or at least prevent a decrease with age? Um, first of all, what are we referring to when talking about fat pads of the feet? Um, I'll make an assumption here because we've got two main fat pads of the feet. Obviously, fat is um, its one of those things, that, you know, throughout most people's lives, they, they spend the majority of the time sort of... Um, demonizing it or trying to get rid of it around in certain body locations but actually on the feet on the underside of the feet um you don't want to get rid of it um not <laughs> can but um it's an incredibly good cushion it's an you know it's an incredibly good anatomical cushion so um the two main fat pads are the calcaneal fat pad so that the squidgy fatty lump you have under the heel bone um, and you've got the um, the forefoot fat pad or the plantar metatarsal area fat pad. So essentially, you've got a thick fat of pad, a pad of fat under the heel and under all of those toe joints that we've just been talking about. So I'm not too sure which one um, is being referred to here, but um, with regards to sort of their their sort of thinning or, or you know wasting away or what we would refer to medically as you know as atrophy. Um, Essentially, that is something that is going to happen with age. And that's something that's essentially, to all intents and purposes, normal. Um, you know, and to my mind, there's there's not really too much you can do to decelerate it. Now, that's not to say there, isn't, there aren't things you can necessarily do about it. But, you know, as far as kind of decelerating the, the natural, gradual process of the fat under our feet sort of thinning out, um, that's a bit like saying, can we can we stop our skin from wrinkling as we age? I mean, some people we can. Some people might sell us things that promise they can, but the reality is at some point we're all going to be wrinkly, and that's okay. That's no, there's nothing abnormal about that. The other way I've heard it described is, you know, think of the pads of fat on your feet like the cushions on your sofa, um, and you know, with every we take ten thousand steps a day, hopefully for 18, 90 plus years. Um, if we if we sat on a sofa. Um, for 80, 90 years, what, you know, what would the cushions look like? They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be nice and thick and full and they wouldn't be new. We'd need to get them restuffed. So I'm not saying we can restuff the fat pad, but certainly this isn't my area. I'm not a surgeon. And um, I know it's also much more popular in the United States uh, than it is here in the UK. And I'm not too sure, forgive me, what the status is in, in, in Australia or other parts of the world. But there are, um, there are people that will inject inject dermal fillers essentially into those regions to sort of it's a bit like adding a bit more foam into your old so uh, uh, old sofa cushions um i've even seen talk of um uh i guess it was fat grafting was what it was being referred to um but that's probably a bit extreme i would say essentially if you if you are getting painful feet and we think that you know rightly or wrongly that's associated with this atrophy or thinning of the fat pad just provide the cushioning that you don't no longer have internally, just provide it externally. So this is where ensuring we've got good cushioned footwear. You know, um, we are going to be less comfortable when we're barefoot, but when we're in shoes, we can do something about it. We can have shoes or insoles that are, are incredibly cushioned. Um, but like I say, it's a natural process. I wouldn't worry about it too much. It, it is going to happen. I mean, there are some there are some disease processes that will contribute to it. 
um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, a couple of uh, diabetes, a couple of, um, I guess, a couple of sort of connective tissue issues like lupus, scleroderma, those kind of things. And body weight will be a factor as well. Um, but I would say to, to anyone who had sore feet and they thought it was because they didn't have much fat on them, um, if, you, if, if appropriate, loosen body weight, wear really, really cushioned shoes, and we've got loads of really, really great options on the market currently, um, and if that isn't bringing any kind of benefit, there are there are things that can be injected. But again, I'm probably not the, the you probably want to talk to a podiatric surgeon about that kind of stuff. They've probably got more day-to-day experience with it than I have. Hmm. Another kind of solution is the those sort of maximalist shoes that you're cushioned shoes that you're sort of delivering for all all these other questions that have been proposed. So, yep, I think it's a um, nice message to have. Everyone just needs to go shoe shopping, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of listeners will be very happy to hear you say that. (laughs) (laughs) We can can move on to question five. Um, uh, This is Joanne again. Asks, is there any exercises that are likely to aggravate Morton's neuroma? Now, we'll, we'll delve into that question in a second. But first of all, what is Morton's neuroma? What causes it? Poor Joanne. I hope she's asking these out of interest, and she's not. <laughs> she's not suffering from these all of these uh, uh, ailments concurrently because uh, that sounds miserable. Um, mm. Yeah, multigeroma. Like I say, or, or you know, we refer to them. I think probably better to refer to them as intermetatarsal neuromas because we can get them in. Um, we can get them as sort of in, in any kind of space in between the metatarsals. So again, we've got those worth looking up a. a uh, a sort of image of, of the foot skeleton and you basically anywhere that there's a, a gap between the metatarsals so the gap in between one and two the gap in between two and three the gap in between three and four and the gap in between four and five so f- you know four potential locations where uh, we can get an intermetatarsal neuroma intermetatarsal just means in between the metatarsals and a neuroma is essentially an irritated swollen painful um, nerve you know we have these nerves that run through here that, that innovate the 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 digits and the web spaces and they can get a little bit a little bit um a little bit swollen a little bit irritated and uncomfortable and, and when they are it, it's fairly classic to be described as um burning classic kind of nerve pain symptoms really burning tingling often um so sometimes it's a numbness in the in the toes or the web spaces between the toes some people report really strange sensations like they're um there's a pebble under their foot or like there is sock is bunched up. So any of those kind of feelings that you're getting, um, it, it's possible that you may have a neuroma. And Morton is the eponymous um, uh, sort of name that's given to it, particularly when it's in web space three, four, which is the most common location, if we're being honest. And pain in the, uh, you know, intermetatarsal regions elsewhere, we could probably consider other things before we consider a neuroma, so to speak. So that's what it is, an incredibly common uh, incredibly common thing. Um, the question I think was, um, what, what, what exercises would aggravate it? Was that the question? Correct. I'd probably extend the question to say, what, what does aggravate it? Are, are there any yeah, things that are yeah. likely to cause an irritation? Yeah, it's, it's, particularly, um, it's particularly sensitive to compression like any nerve uh, can, can be. So essentially compression can be uh, sort of transverse compression. So almost imagine your foot's being squeezed side to side, which is why people may say that when they're wearing their running shoes it, it, to commute to work, it's much more comfortable than when they're wearing their Oxfords or their Brogues. So you know, stiff, narrow, tight leather kind of dress shoes uh, traditionally um, would be would be something that we would expect to be provocative um, because of the side to side compression. Um, but I've also, you know, also spoken to a few people that report um, prolonged compression from beneath as well. So if you think about, um, so people who cycle can sometimes uh, complain about this for two reasons. I think cycle footwear can be quite, quite narrow and quite tight fitting anyway. But also where the the interface is between the pedal and the and the cleat um, is normally right where where the problem lay. Um, I've also had a few people that have talked about sort of oh, it's bothering me when I'm running. So I went on the cross trainer or the, the elliptical trainer in the gym. And actually the elliptical trainer can often annoy them more because with the elliptical trainer, you don't have a flight phase or a float phase as you do when you're running. Your feet are just constantly in contact with that um, with that plate. So essentially you, um, you just get prolonged compression and it just 
continues to intensify as you exercise. So they don't like they don't like compression nerves in particular. Everyone, I know, I'm certain everyone has um, woken up one more, you know, in the middle of the night because they've because they've been sleeping awkwardly on their arm. They've been compressing, you know, compressing a nerve in their arm, and it and it just feels miserable. And as soon as you you know remove the compression, take your body weight off that arm, things kind of settle down. The problem with the foot is there's just this constant repetitive cyclical compression either from shoes or from the ground or from the way the foot's performing mechanically that just keeps this in a in this perpetual state of irritability and annoyance um, so again exercise wise i would say anything that um, contributes to that compression um, is probably to be avoided well said yeah um, i've also seen I don't know if you've seen as well, some runners that have a, like a narrow or like a crossover step width and they sort of their right foot as it's about to make contact with the ground, like reaches over to the left-hand side and makes contact over on the other side of the midline and can um, essentially, where, what, what happens is when they do that cutting action, the, the outside of the foot makes contact with the ground first. And then when you have that uh, ground reaction force in combination with that tends to kind of create a little bit of compression. And so there might be a little bit of irritation. Have you seen like a similar pattern with Morton's neuroma and that, that particular gait cycle? I must admit, I, I, it's not something that immediately I, I think, yes, I've seen lots of, but it makes total, you know, hearing you say it makes total mechanical sense. If we, if we, if we load that lateral column, as we often do, if we're, if we've got a big, t- uh, you know, tibial varium, if you've got very um, bowed shins, or indeed, if we're very narrow in our step width, um, they're two, two of the main reasons that we would see a foot presented to the ground when running in a very inverted position. So we'd land on the outside border of the shoe first. And then what we often have to do to avoid spraining our ankle is a very rapid uh, sort of inward movement or very rapid pronation. So that is certainly a mechanism by which you would expect the, the metatarsals to sort of um, translate relative to each other. So we often think of well, we often tell students to visualize the, the five metatarsals like piano keys and the way they move kind of relative to each other depending on how the foot's behaving. So I think that mechanism is, is um, certainly feasible. Um, yeah, I think that's a very, very valid point. Hmm. Uh, there was another thing I was going to say about the, the burning kind of sensation. Anyway, um, I'll move on to Rachel's question and she has a bit of a... Um, a story. She has a couple of distinct pains in her feet. Um, when I'm running, there is no pain. However, hours later, I have a strong burning on the side of each of my feet and heels. Um, I have compartment syndrome and wonder if it is related. Uh, so I guess where we can sort of direct this question to you, if people are getting sort of burning sensations, particularly on the outside of their feet or the outside of their heels, is there any cause of concern or any particular common pathology that might produce those symptoms? So obviously, you know, pain is, we know, we know, uh, and your listeners will know, because I know it's been on many of your episodes before that pain is complex. Um, and, and pain is whatever the, the sufferer says it is. Um, and it's sometimes difficult to verbalize or articulate. So people, you know, it's like someone explaining to you what it feels like to be thirsty. It's not always easy. I know what I know when I'm thirsty. I know what it feels like, but I, I couldn't necessarily really well describe it. And I think pain is is very similar. That said, whenever someone says burning, whenever someone describes, you know, uses the word burning to me, until proven otherwise, my thought process is this: this could be neural. This could be, you know, this this could be nerve related pain. And I think with this particular case, um, what, what, what raises my index of suspicion even further is the reference to compartment syndrome. I'm assuming she means she has some sort of chronic exertional lower leg compartment type syndrome, which we know we can get distal nerve changes, paresthesia, pins and needles associated with that. So with those two things combined, obviously, you know, with the huge caveat that um, with limited information and not not seeing them not seeing the, the the individual in front of me i'm i'm just theorizing and hypothesizing but someone says to me i suffer with compartment syndrome and i'm getting burning in my feet after running that sounds very neural to me would it um would it help your hypothesis if the 
Rhino is reporting that they're getting symptoms on both sides compared to just one side. If they had um, some sort of bilateral symptoms, would that particularly spark any um, change your answer or help you confirm a certain theory? Yeah, we do. We do sometimes, you know, we are always interested as to whether someone's got something bilateral on both sides or just one side. Um, again, one of the, you know, there's there's so many different re, uh, so many different causes of exercise-induced leg pain. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the professors at the university I teach at has got a slide where every time he finds a differential, he adds to it. And I, I, I think he's got like 45, 46, 47. <laughs> and now, obviously, I'm not saying we see all of them commonly, um, but when we look at the, the big ones, you know, things like stress fractures, uh, medial tibial stress syndrome, what people may know as open quotations, shin splints, close quotations, chronic exertional compartment syndrome, uh, but, and nerve entrapment syndromes. So I think nerve entrapment syndromes and chronic exertional compartment syndromes can sometimes mirror each other. And certainly whether someone's got something bilateral or unilateral would be an important part of that discussion. And, and again, you know, history taking is really, really key here. And obviously, we don't have much more history than you've given us. But I would say, I mean, I hope that they are already seeing someone for this. Um, I mean, I guess they must be or they wouldn't. Have, I, I, I would be highly surprised if they'd self-diagnosed compartment syndrome from the Internet. And it's not impossible, but I know, you know, runners do <laughs> runners do do this. But I would say that I'd be very surprised if what they're experiencing at foot level is, isn't in some way part of that overall clinical picture. Mm. An add on to Rachel's, uh, an add on to Rachel's scenario was, um, should I be changing my footwear because it seems like she's been running in minimalist footwear, and if I guess if we're kind of suspecting it's it's likely due to the compartment syndrome. In most cases, like when people have minimalist footwear, it increases the demand on car, the calf complex, and so would increase the demand, the pressure, the um, compartment to actually you know, produce like a lot of force and therefore have a lot more symptoms. Um, would you, if she were wearing this minimalist footwear, would you potentially recommend um, trying something else, trying a, a different type of footwear? Um, I guess we're still not too sure what compartment we're talking about either, are we? So if it was, um, you know, posterior compartment, um, you know, calf, calf complex, tricep sura complex, then there is no doubt that being in more minimal footwear, more often than not, all other things being equal, will place a lot more demand and load on the calf. So if we do have a, a posterior compartment type syndrome and we're in minimal footwear, those two things don't seem like they are a particularly good marriage, if that makes sense. That said, if it's an anterior compartment uh, syndrome, Often, switching to a more forefoot strike, a more, dare we use the word, you know, na um, barefoot slash minimal running style, and that's not to say that if you go in minimal shoes, you will definitely run that way, but it, it does seem to help uh, facilitate that. Then actually running more on the forefoot, being in a more minimal shoe for an anterior compartment syndrome may well be very, very helpful. Um, so it's difficult to know for sure without having more information, but I would certainly say that if the other thing to mention, of course, is if you, if you, if the thing you're currently doing isn't working for you, then you should always be open-minded to trying something different. And the one thing I would say is that you know, changing shoes, playing around with shoes, although an expensive, expensive thing to do. Two things to say: firstly, as a runner, you know, you shouldn't be too upset about having to buy new shoes. It's what we all love doing, as we know. But definitely, you know, if you try shoes and they don't work, if you try shoes and they make things worse. There's no harm done. You just go back to what, you know, you can easily reverse the situation. When you're talking about compartment syndrome, um, often at some stage, the discussion of surgery comes up, you know, fasciotomies and things. And again, not saying it isn't sometimes really useful and, and has, doesn't sometimes has really good outcomes, but it's a, it's a big day out. And the one thing I'd say about any surgery, and again, I, I, I'm conscious that I'm speaking from a position of bias as someone who is not a surgeon, um, but the one thing I've always said to people is whatever we try conservatively, it may help, it may not help, it may make things better, it may make things worse, but it's, it's always completely reversible. And the one thing about surgery is once you've had it, you can't unhave it. So when you're sort of having tests for compartment syndrome, being told you might need compartment pressure testing, being told, you know, 
you know, here's the docu here's the literature about a fasciotomy. The reality is that why would you not at least try changing things that are easy to change, like footwear, the low hanging fruit, uh, before you consider more invasive things? Yeah, very well said. And I, some of my clients don't often like hearing this, but I kind of sometimes find it useful when it's when it's worse when you try something and it makes it worse and i i you know uh, very particular or careful with what i say but sometimes i say it's great because if we find out that we make a change and it makes it worse well then that's a little bit of evidence on understanding how it behaves and we can actually now head in the other direction and yeah. see if that makes it better so sometimes that particular presentation or that reaction can be very helpful from a diagnostic point of view or like a behavior point of view in terms of like future management so it can be a good thing as well yeah you, well, this is the, i think that's a great point you always learn something don't you and even if it makes it worse then uh, like you say well it shows it's it shows it's receptive to change so we we just we've just changed things in the wrong direction so yeah we're, we're always going to learn something mm. moving on we have steve who um asks what are some foot exercises that you might recommend for persistent Achilles tendinopathy? Oh my goodness. I'm conscious that I'm sitting in front of a physio here who, who knows, uh, who knows this, this, uh, way, way more than I do. Um, yeah, I should, I should say that I, um, I, I'm very spoiled where I work in, in that I work with, with great physios. So often when it comes to tendinopathies, I play minimal role in, in the prescription and overseeing of, of rehab. Um, let me give you a great example of, of how um, sort of basic my, my, under, my knowledge and understanding of this is. Um, my father-in-law, who's sort of in his mid-60s, uh, multiple marathons under his belt. I was round, we were, we were round there for Sunday dinner a few months ago now, and... Um, the, the dreaded discussion happens you know you're at the family you're at the family dinner table you're having a cup of tea afterwards and oh can I just ask you about my oh no here we go and um again still got guy in his mid-60s still running very very uh, very decent mileage and classic kind of mid-portion pain mid-portion swelling you know what should I do and you know we're in the, my kids are running around and I'm not going to fully assess and, and you know it's Sunday afternoon so I did I'm, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say certainly in front of you I'm embarrassed to say Brody I, I basically said to him right here's what I want you to do for the next week I want you to stand on the bottom step of your stairs uh, just with your heel hanging over but just holding your your your, your ankle at a right angle so I basically said I basically gave him isometrics I said do that for a week and let me know if it's any better. And if not, we'll work out what to do. And all I really wanted to do on that Sunday evening was, um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he'll never listen to this, so I'm, I'm okay. But all I wanted to do was end the conversation <laughs> and get on with my Sunday evening. And I thought it will buy me a week to work out, you know, okay, what am I going to do with him? Who am I going to send him to see? Um, it's a problem for future me, basically. Um, he, he sent me a text on, that was on Sunday, he sent me a text on the Friday of, of you know, five, six days later. Uh, he was completely pain free. <laughs> wow! There you go. I, I was, you know, and and again, it's. A, I know it's a very very uh, dated so, uh, scenario where we essentially say, right, st always start with isometrics. I'm fully aware that they're not as magical and pain relieving um, as as I know we once thought they were. I know some of the early data that suggested they were magical was was brought into question. Was a bit limited in its sample size, um, and I'm also conscious that. You know, having worked with Hakan Alfredson uh, in London for a few years, you know, the Alfredson protocol of, of eccentrics, um, you know, it, it's no cookie cutter approach. There's no there's no recipe book. There's no blanket approach here. Certainly the physios I work with, and I know, I know you'll be the same, Brody. They essentially say, you know, if you said to, if, if I'd have said to one of them on Monday morning, oh, my, my father-in-law's got an Achilles tendinopathy. Can you can you print off a rehab program for me? I know the look I'd have got, uh, and it would have quite rightly been. We don't just have a here's a, here's rehab for Achilles tendinopathy. It's it's tailored and individualised. It you know it isn't just three sets of ten. So apologies to Steve that I've not really answered this question, but I would say, if in doubt, basically start yourself on isometrics until you can get an appointment with the physio. <laughs> Hopefully that isn't too out of keeping with what you say, Brody. <laughs> It's a very safe question uh, or very safe answer. 
And uh, I guess if the, if the response, um, just going back to your, your scenario, if, um, the response is, oh, I feel a little bit better. Well, then it's probably just trying to head more in that direction and say, okay, if the, that loading made things 15% better, how about if we try some more loading and that being possibly heavier rather than longer duration. And if that makes things better, then you continue heading in that same direction. But if it doesn't head in that direction, then you might try and look at other options and look at, you know, footwear or training loads or running intensities or anything that's outside, uh, any loading that's inside or outside of running throughout the week to actually try and, um, you know, adjust those dials to see if there's some sort of loading that could be had or um, other factors that you could put a play. But um, I'm sure you're very proud of yourself when he, he returned that message and said that he was pain-free. I looked like a hero, which is a problem. <laughs> it's a problem for next time, isn't it? Because the expectation is inappropriately set now. <laughs> I just... Yes. I just <laughs> yeah. All right, we've got two more to go. We have James who asks... Um, what's your recommendations for footwear outside of running? So like if during work or during summer, just, you know, um, outside footwear, you, uh, do you recommend any type of footwear from an injury prevention standpoint in terms of, and he put in, um, like stability or cushioning or something along those lines? Okay. So is this, um, is, is, is James asking day to day footwear that might reduce our chance of, of being injured? when we run is that the have i interpreted that correctly i would interpret the same yeah. way yes um I, I wish there were i don't necessarily you know i'm always nervous when we we use the term injury prevention um i i, I don't think we can prevent injury um you know as runners we we will cross paths with it um in our in our lives um more than once and that's just the nature of the beast so prevention is 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 it's the it's the ideal. It's what we'd love to promise, but I think prevention is a very strong word. I think we can, you know, there are lots of things we can do that can reduce risk or mitigate risk, but even then, I think prevention is quite a strong term. Now, when it comes to footwear's ability, I think it gets too much. Um, uh, I'm sure we've spoken about this before, Brady. I think it gets too much credit sometimes um, uh, with regard to its 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 ability to have a significant influence on injury. Um, when we really look into the data, uh, and we're talking about, I guess we're talking about running shoes here primarily because there haven't really been uh, many studies on, on non-running shoes in this regard, but when we look at different facets of running shoes, so we've looked at the, 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 the stability or the, the dual density midsoles, the pronation control shoes, when they've looked at whether you know high drop shoes versus low drop shoes, when they've looked at cushioning, so stack height, you know, um, essentially, you know, there isn't really a strong overwhelming theme or conclusion that emerges from the totality of the literature that says yep this is what helps prevent injury and that they're the shoes we're wearing when we run so as far as day-to-day -day shoes that we could wear that would have some kind of injury prevention uh, qualities I, I i'd say i i would be surprised uh, i've certainly not seen any data to support it um the approach i take to life is um one that i think many people do sort of intuitively anyway which is uh, wear things that are comfortable now that means different things to different people so i know friends that are incredibly comfortable in converse um personally i my hooves after an hour in converse i, I you know that's not for me I, I i need i need if i'm going to be on my feet walking around i need cushioning so i generally um and again i'm middle-aged now so you know fashion has, has long passed me by i generally favor comfort over what things look like much to my wife's dismay um Around the house, you know, at the weekend, if I'm in the garden with the kids, if it's if it's sunny, on, on the three days a year that we have a barbecue here because the sun is out, um, I'll wear sliders or, or flip flops, um, thongs. I think you probably refer to them as. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to wear things that I find comfortable, that are fit for task, and I guess when I think about it, um, a bit of variation. So being barefoot a bit in the garden, being in flip flops, being in Converse. Uh, I spend, I, I do the school run in running shoes. I'm that guy, I'm afraid. Um, so yeah, just, I think variation and comfort are probably what we should favor, but not with the, not with too strong a promise that we're probably uh, preventing injury. Yeah, I think, I think the other um, 
area to concentrate on. Like I've, I've wrote down definitely the comfort side, definitely the, the variety or at least adapting to variety. You want to adapt to being barefoot, being like, you know, having a whole bunch of different footwear that would, that's probably going to help, you know, broaden your scope. Um, but also, like you said earlier, when in regards to the whole body, body doesn't really like surprises. It doesn't really like, you know, too much abrupt changes in things. And so if you, I used to, when I was in clinics, um, used to see a lot of plantar fasciitis come summer as soon as we started having warm weather and people were just spending a lot more time in less footwear, barefoot footwear, walking around the house, walking outside, going to the beach and like spending a lot more time just asking a huge demand of the feet. And then these reactions would start to, to play out. And that's a, a good example of surprises, just, you know, a huge abrupt shift change and the, the body's just like, what are you doing to me? I need time to adapt to this. I need time to strengthen up to, you know, cope with what you're um, demanding. And so, yeah, I, I do think that footwear, like you said, footwear tends to, in terms of its marketing, promise a whole lot, but runners are also ones to quickly blame the footwear a lot of the times as well when they are injured. Um, but you answered that perfectly. So I think that's... Um, just to add to your point, just to add to your story to interrupt, just to add to your point, because it's something I've noticed as well in, in, in London, um, sort of pre, pre-pandemic, obviously the, the lawyers, the, 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 the solicitors, the, the accountants, the bankers, etc., would all be in... Um, you know, Oxfords or Brogues, stiff-soled, leather, you know, real formal shoes with suits, you know, double Windsor ties, the whole works. Um, and then they, you know, we had a fairly long, as you know, prolonged, um, on, you know, lockdown where they were sort of uh, sitting on Zoom in their pyjamas for most of the day and they were at home probably barefoot or wearing slippers, flip-flops. Um, now we're back in the city. Um, I speak to people now who've worn Oxfords and Brogues for 20 years, but not for the last two years. And now they say when they put them on for a meeting, they can't wait to get them off again. They just, they, they're just not used to them uh, anymore. Um, they cannot wait. You know, they, they, they now say, I used to wear my, 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 you know, number ones, as we refer to them here. I used to wear them 14 hours a day. Now I literally come in in my trainers. If I don't have a meeting or a face to face with a client, I won't, I'll just leave them under my desk. So it just speaks again to, we, we, we like we like what we know and we know what we like. And, and again, if we want to get used to something, then we're going to need to um, do that slowly and gradually over time. Yeah, that's a nice, um, a nice thing for people to self-reflect on when it comes to lifestyle changes as well. We've got Melody to finish off. Uh, she says, I constantly get sore toes and some aching around the toes. I have plenty of toe room in the shoes. The shoes are a good length and the width and even changing the shoes produces the same outcome. Um, have you seen people with like the, their toes themselves becoming quite achy and like any sort of advice for malady? So the, with the, with the information we have, and this is something where, if, you know, we'd normally in, in clinic, as I know you would, we'd, we'd delve a bit deeper and we'd want a bit more, more backstory here so you know that that we hear that they're sore despite the toe width at uh, toe box width and we hear that they're sore despite changing shoes but i i kind i guess i kind of want to know are they are they only sore in footwear um or are they sore out of footwear um are they sore at rest do they interrupt sleep uh, do they have a predilection for being more sore first thing in the morning you know is there, is there morning stiffness and again there's probably another barrage of questions i'd ask there which would be around, are there any other uh, unexplained joint pains anywhere else in the body? How are the joints of the hands feeling? Um, is there a strong family history of this kind of thing? Uh, do you have psoriasis? Do you have regular eye irritations, st- stomach upsets, IBS? The kind of the, the questions that we, I guess, we would refer to as seeing if you know there are any inflammatory flags. Um, because this could just be, you know, hearing hooves and thinking horses rather than zebras, sore toes could just be, like we say, ill-fitting shoes, um, a narrow toe box, a shallow toe box, uh, etc. Um, but if changing shoes isn't changing symptoms at all, and if you know there's adequate toe box room and these toes are still essentially unexplained, and there's an unexplained aching within the joints of the toes, 
um, it's probably reasonable to start thinking more globally, potentially, or at least at least to exclude that, right? So I don't want to terrify Malady and suddenly make her um, sort of think that she's got lots of things wrong with her, but essentially at this point it's it's probably reasonable at the very least to, to meet with your GP and have a blood test um, and start some form of sort of um, investigative process because there's lots of things that can make toes sore that essentially are, are more global or systemic and not anything to do with the toes so to speak um, if 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 in doubt back to the rock assault the stiff carbon plated rock assault footwear right there you go <laughs> we'll add it as an answer to i think six of our nine questions that we've had on here <laughs> i'm not on commission i promise but i i as someone who as someone who has incredibly stiff cavoid high arched feet very poor shock absorbing feet I'm very limited in my range at the ankle. I'm very arthritic in both of my big toes. Um, and I'm still, at the moment at least, maintaining between 70 and 80 kilometers a week of running. I wouldn't be able to do that were it not for these shoes that we currently have. They are, they, you know, I am a little bit biased. I am looking through my own lens because they, they really speak to me. They really suit my, my, my anatomy and my, defi- my, my, my deficiencies, so to speak. And we're going to finish up there. Like that was amazing. I'm very conscious of the fact that this was a very hard task to to come on as a guest and have these questions that have limited sort of information. Very hard to explain, you know, just purely from an audio perspective. There's a lot of questions, a lot of different questions, and I've I've said that we we sort of need to keep to around the hour, the hour fifteen mark, and you've just taken that all on board and taken it like a champion and you know you've executed on all these questions with you know world-class knowledge and wisdom so thank you very much for coming on taking on the challenge and thanks for joining me once again my pleasure my pleasure i hope it was i hope it was useful and that concludes another run smarter lesson i hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a run smarter scholar Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based, long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.